Hello, patrons. It's me, Rose, um, here with a bonus podcast. This is my interview with Siddharth Suri, the co-author of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Um, this was the book club pick for December, and I am really excited that I got to talk to Sid about the book. Um, and so you're going to hear that. And then after the interview, I'm going to drop a few little updates about the show, podcast, flash forward, <laughs> this thing that you donate money to, um, the off season, what I'm working on at the moment, and kind of a little bit of um, planning for the rest of the year, kind of what to expect. Um, some really quick book club updates. Uh, we recently voted on the next three books all at once, which actually gives folks a little bit more time to read if you're not a book a month kind of person. Um, so January's book is Infinite Detail by Tim Mon, which you heard about on the last episode of the season last year. Um, that's about the end of the internet. February's book is The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard. Um, and that book is basically what it sounds like, a book about the mosquito. Um, and then in March, we are reading Pet by Aquaki Amazie, uh, which is a story of a trans girl in this sort of perfect utopian city, but she can kind of still see the evil monsters lurking below when everyone else thinks that everything is perfect. I'm excited about that one. Um, so if you want to join the book club, if you're not already in the book club, uh, you can always do that. It is the $7 tier benefit. I'm just saying anytime you want to just click that little button, you can make it happen. Um, we talk about the books in the Slack and you also get to ask questions that I will then ultimately try to ask the author's. Um, as you know, I try to interview every author. I don't always succeed, but I try. Um, and this is, um, and I'm excited for you to actually hear this interview with Sid. Um, again, Sid is the co-author of Ghost Work. Uh, I definitely recommend this book if you have not already read it, if you're not in the book club, or if you are in the book club and you didn't have time to read it in December. That's totally fine. It happens. December is a really hard month, especially. Um, but the book is really interesting. It sort of pulls back the curtain on a lot of things that seem fully automated, but actually have a lot more people involved than you might expect. Um, those people are just invisible. So for example, I'll, I'll give you one of the examples that they gave in the book that I thought was really good and kind of illuminating what we're talking about here. So let's say that you call an Uber. Um, and so you're waiting on the curb, you're like looking at your phone, you're probably tracking the little car icon as it like drives along on the map. Um, maybe you're annoyed that they took like a weird turn or something. Um, so in order for that Uber driver to be matched to you, obviously your driver at the very beginning of the process when they became an Uber driver had to provide Uber with a photo ID, right? Probably a driver's license and maybe even additional documentation depending on when they became a driver. Um, and let's say that in that photo, your Uber driver had a beard. Um, but last night, uh, for whatever reason, your driver decided that it was time to shave off the beard. Maybe he is seeing his mom later today or maybe he has a date and the date doesn't like beards for some reason, which I don't understand. Um, anyway, Uber asked asks drivers to take selfies as part of their kind of real-time ID check as sort of a safety measure to make sure that the driver in the car actually matches the person on the account. Um, so, you know, your driver decides to start driving, he takes his selfie, um, and Uber's system actually flags his account immediately because they have a system that sort of can tell, hey, this something is different in these two pictures. So it's smart enough to see that these two things are different. The AI is smart enough to see that they're different. But the AI is not smart enough to actually look at those two photos and confirm that, in fact, this is still the same person, just with or without a beard. So what happens then is that a human being, based probably somewhere else in the world, is asked to look at those two pictures side by side and confirm whether or not they are, in fact, the same person. And this all happens very quickly in a matter of minutes. So, you know, you get your Uber, it 
you know, matches you to this person, Uber flags the account, sends these two photos to this human platform. A worker picks up the job, looks at the photos, and confirms or denies your driver uh, in literally just a couple of minutes. You and your driver probably have no idea that this has happened. Um, He pulls up to the curb, you get in, and you go about your day thinking that all of this happened automatically, just with software. But it did not. There is a person involved in this sort of like seemingly automated transaction. And those people, the people who do those sorts of little jobs, are what Sid and his co-author Mary Gray call ghost workers. And so their book, Ghost Work, is about those people and kind of how we can make sure that they are protected and paid fairly and not traumatized on the job and that we don't kind of, as they say in the subtitle of the book, build a sort of like new global underclass. And instead, we actually treat these workers in a way that is ethical and fair. So uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Sid, who was working from home when I talked to him because it was snowing in Seattle where he lives, which is a rare enough thing that the entire city kind of like freaks out about it. Um, so here's my interview with Sid. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is very exciting. Um, I want to start with just maybe, can you give me the origin story of this book? Like why and how did you and Mary decide to write this particular book together? Sure. Um uh- First off, I just want to say, Rose, and to all the listeners, Rose, thanks for having me. To all the listeners, thank you for 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 listening and and for reading the book. It's it's. Uh, I know you have a lot of demands on your time, and it's quite an honor that you chose to spend it reading what we wrote. Um, the origin story is, it's um, yeah, it's uh, I come at this from kind of a strange place. So back in, if you rewind back to like um, roughly two thousand eight, two thousand nine. At that point in my career, I had done a lot of behavioral experiments. So it's like you get like you get like undergraduates in a laboratory. They're using your software. Half of them get the treatment. Half of them get the control. And you understand the difference of in their behavior. And but the problem was I was I started a job at Yahoo Research in New York. And at Yahoo, we had neither undergraduates nor laboratories. <laughs> and. And we wanted to do these kinds of experiments, or specifically me and, and, and Duncan Watts and Winter Mason and a few of my colleagues did. And so necessity was the mother of all invention. We were like, okay, how do we shoehorn these experiments into crowdsourcing sites? And you got to remember, this is like 08, 09. Like crowdsourcing was like a new term. Um, now it's something people take for granted. And so, you know, we basically figured out how to make our experiments the task and make the the, the subjects were the paid participants or the workers on these crowdsourcing sites. And that was really cool. And we made a lot of progress. We did a lot of experiments that we that would have been impossible to do in a lab or very difficult to do in a lab. So we even like expanded the capabilities. And this is now now you gotta fast forward to like we did this for about four or five years. Uh, now it's like um, like 2012. And at this point in time, every time I gave a presentation about one of these experiments, I would always have to say, like, what is Mechanical Turk? What is crowdsourcing? And, and, and I have to explain it to everyone. And then right around 2012, it, there was like a, a phase transition. I never had to explain it after that. Everyone knew what it was. Um, but everyone would always ask me, who are the workers? And I would say, like, oh, well, their average age is this and they're, you know, more female than male or, or whatever. I would just give demographic answers. But, and then five minutes later, the same person would always raise their hand and say, like, yeah, but who are they? And I had to sort of shrug my shoulders and say, I don't really know. And then in 2012, I started working at, at, at Microsoft and Mary was already there. And she came down. She was in Microsoft Research Boston and I was in New York. And she came down one day and she said, hey, 
I heard you did a lot of work in this space of crowdsourcing. And, and she said, you know, would you like to team up and do an ethnography of these workers? And I said, you know, sure, that sounds awesome. You know, what's an ethnography? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and really what I was thinking was she's an anthropologist. I'm a computer scientist. There's never going to be a time when two people of such different fields are interested in studying the same thing ever again. Like, you know, lightning's not going to strike twice. We're both interested in the same thing. We're at the same institution. Let's do this. Let's see what happens. And that's the origin story. Yeah. Maybe this is a silly question because maybe there were lots of things, but was there anything that was most surprising to you that you learned in sort of like reporting out this book? Yeah. It's one of those things that like in hindsight is like, Dead obvious forehead slap in the face, <laughs> but in foresight, I just didn't get it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, it's almost embarrassing to say. So, um, like I said, I had been doing work for about four or five years, and then Mary and I had been working together for a while. And one of the earliest findings we had, and this was together with Ming Yin, who's an incredibly talented professor at Purdue, um, what we learned was that the workers in these crowdsourcing and on-demand labor platforms, they communicate with each other. They form their own networks and their own communities offline to provide each other with social support and to help each other earn money and, and, and help each other learn best practices. And it's one of those, why is it so like forehead slapping? Like, of course humans seek each other out. Of, of course humans are going to try to build things to help each other out. Like, that's what we do. Cooperation is one of the fundamental aspects of human nature. Socialization, one of the fundamental aspects of human nature. But what had happened was in this setting, in the crowdsourcing setting, that API, it sits between, you know, the people who create the tasks and the workers, and it hid all those connections and links that the workers formed uh, with each other. And that's why I, as a computer scientist, missed it until Mary and I sort of teamed up and then found it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because one of the things that comes up in the book a lot is this way in which like, the individual human people are sort of obfuscated yeah. from the, the – computer scientist or the person who's yeah. sort of like asking for the task and, yeah. you know, to varying levels of intentionality. And like, you know, we can talk about why that is and what the benefits are, but that also makes it probably it harder for you as people who want to then go meet those people to find them. Can you talk about your methods? Like how do you actually find yeah. these ghosts, right? They're intentionally yeah. hidden. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, you're spot on. And just before I even answer your question, that was part of the allure for me is that these people are hidden and I I and Mary and our team, like we're gonna go find them. Like if these people weren't so hidden, I might not have been so interested. Mm -hmm. It was like, that was part of the challenge that kind of really kind of got me going, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so our, 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 we did a lot of, the, we, we sort of like, pen, I'll say punctured through or penetrated through that API and met these people face to face in a num using a number of different techniques. Um, so one technique we did was in, in a lot of the platforms, like on Mechanical Turk, for example, we put up a survey and asked workers, you know, a lot about their relationship, this kind of work. And at the end, we'd say, hey, would you like to be interviewed? Um, but if you think about that for a minute, what kind of workers is that going to get? It's just going to get the kind of workers that do surveys. It's not going to get the general population. So another thing we did was we embedded that survey in other tasks. So, for example, 
we had workers uh, categorize email as spam or not spam. And after they did like 10 or 20 of them, we'd pop a little window would pop up and say, hey, thanks for doing our task. Would you like to do this survey for a bonus? Uh, so we could tap into other sort of networks of workers. Um, that was th that was a, a common technique. Another technique in some of the platforms we studied, we actually had the platform designers help us send out email blasts to the to, to the workers saying, hey, you know, would you like to be interviewed? Would you like to do this survey? And then, um, so those were all techniques we used. And then other techniques, we even did more than just that. And like another technique we used was we wanted to figure out, for example, Mary had to figure out where to go in the world to interview these in, these workers, right? And so we had to figure out, well, where are they? So what we did was it built probably the simplest task you could imagine. We 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 showed workers. Uh, it was actually a Bing map since we work at Microsoft. We didn't use Google <laughs> Maps. We used a Bing map, and we said we said, hey, put a pin in this map wherever you are right now. That's it. And then we got about five thousand workers to do that over the course of about five weeks. We paid them about we paid them a quarter because it took like you know under a minute and it took like three mouse clicks, and that allowed us to see where in the world they are, and that allowed us to figure out where Mary should go. And, and, and also conversely, it allows us to figure out, okay, Mary went to all these places. Did we hit all the hotspots or not? So these are some of the techniques we use to sort of um, find the workers. Is, it, is that, does that make sense? Yeah. One of the things that came up, I think, a lot in the discussion in the book club group was people sort of reacting in the same way that you talk about in the book, which is that they didn't realize that there were these people like doing all these yeah. things, right? There's this, yeah. you know, veneer of like, oh, it's all automated and it's all yeah. algorithms and it's all like fancy magic tech. And yeah. a lot of people were like, oh, dang, like I had no idea. Like I didn't realize that like, you yeah. know, there are people doing this stuff. It's not nearly as sort of seamless and automated as it, you know, is made to look, which I thought was really yeah. interesting. And I wonder... I mean, you know a lot more, I think, than the average person about what is and isn't cap like possible, right, with some of these algorithms and some of this yeah. stuff. But were there any tasks that even you were surprised by where you were like, oh, wow, I didn't realize that there had to be a human in between those two things? Um, huh, let me think about that for a minute. Um, it wasn't so much the... the the category of the task that surprised me, it was so much, it was more so within that category, how the people were being used. And I'll give you two examples. We, 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 uh, one example we give was, was Justin. He was categorizing couches as camelback or not camelback couches. Mm -hmm. And, a cam and, and I had to look this up. A camelback <laughs> couch is just a, it's just a couch that has a curved back. Like I had no idea. Um, uh, and so, um, and, and he was literally categorizing them. And I knew sort of from a sort of theoretical level that you need humans to tag images with the main thing in that image so that machine learning algorithms could then learn from those images. I knew that. But what I didn't really know was like, wow, like that is so unbelievably specific. You know, like, like in all the examples you, you hear, it's like it's like a ball versus like a couch or like. A, you know, a ball versus like an airplane. It's not like a camelback. Like what? Who even knows what that is? So, so that was one example. And another example was like, um, uh, uh, there, there was that that woman. Um, I forget her name. She was Indian, and you know, she was categorizing text as as suitable for work or not suitable for work. And 
you know, if you think about that for a minute, the examples I come up with are generally pretty straightforward. You know, there's like, you know, pornographic words and swear words and things like that. I would have never thought about the word chick flick in the context of, is this suitable for work or not? And she being from India, she, you know, she, she didn't know the American slang. And so she had to ask her sons. But it's, it's just that it's just within that category, you know, the actual use cases really surprised me. Yeah, I love that story. Kala is who you're talking about. And yeah. I love that story yeah, where yeah. she's like asking her sons being like, is this a bad word? <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. like, and how would sons, you know? I wasn't there. Mary was. And I think it was kind of like a lighthearted moment. Like her sons were kind of like, poking fun. oh, come on, mom. Yeah. You know, like kind of poking fun at her for not knowing it. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, yeah, I, I will say like my this is probably just, you know, reveals my own proclivities. But my favorite chapter maybe was actually mm -hmm. the one about the history of labor protections um, sure. and sort of like. It, it is it often feels as though all of these problems are new, right? Where it's like, oh, and then we live in this like weird connected yeah. world where like who, you know, who could have predict predicted that this would happen? But like actually, you know, there's like all of this really interesting history about labor protections yeah. and how they all connect. Um, I'm curious if that chapter like was any of that surprising to you or did you did you know all of that already? Or like how did you decide to even include that in the book? Oh, I most definitely did not know all of that already. Um, as a computer scientist, that is like way outside. <laughs> my scope, like by a mile. Um, uh, I, I would definitely say Mary uh, sort of spearheaded that chapter and um, um, I, in my opinion, did a great job. Um, what surprised me most is like just the realization that, you know, there's like a hundred plus years of labor laws, you know, designed to inform, you know, stand traditional methods of sort of nine to five employment. But then, but then when you go to this kind of API driven um, setting, a lot of that stuff goes out the window. And just, just that realization that that helped me realize like why we are where we are. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, yeah. you know, like lawyers, you know, unions, all that stuff informed a lot of this but then we got this new thing that's a little bit different, and and now and now we got to come to terms with it. Um, so that was kind of the new part for me. Yeah. So Libby Larson from the book club asked a question that I thought was really interesting, and mm -hmm. she was asking like sort of a little bit about like the nitty gritty definition of ghost work, like how mm. you decide, like what is there a difference between on demand human labor, sort of like the the way that either Mechanical Turk or even like um, you know any of these systems work. And then this like, you know, there's also this conversation about the human capital that is sort of that paradoxical last mile of AI. And so we had this conversation about like, it, are there, would you consider like an Uber driver ghost work or not? Because they are like, obviously, you know, in front of you, but they're also sort of like it in part of the same system in that like gig yeah. economy kind of way. Like, how do you decide which is which? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, fair question. Um, so, um, I would, okay. So I think, I think it's not very controversial to say that, you know, would an Uber driver be considered on demand labor? I think that's kind of like a hundred percent, right? Like, I don't think anybody would argue that. Right. But then is it, is it ghost work? And you might, one, one thing you might do, you know, in, in one thing you might invoke in, in that setting for, for something to be ghost work, it, the, the, the person has to be hidden. But in, in Uber's case, they're, they're not. In fact, you're sitting in their car staring at them. Mm -hmm. um, um, I guess 
what we wanted to focus on Actually, you know, yeah, that, that's kind of a nice way to think about it. Like if you think about a lot of the laws sort of going on in California right now, you know, a lot of the issues around Uber drivers and unionization and all that, I, I think I think in terms of the on-demand economy, the Uber drivers are sort of ahead of the game. That conversation is sort of a little bit more advanced because Uber drivers are, are in your face and you can meet them and talk to them and, and, and touch them. But in terms of ghost work, that conversation, I think, is kind of lagged a little behind because the workers are hidden. So I, I, I think, a, you know, a, a fair way to make that distinction would be, you know, on-demand labor is work that's, you know, like we say in the book, uh, created, managed, shipped, built, scheduled, sourced through an API. But then the ghost work, you might think, you know, that might have that added kind of um, requirement that it's actually hidden, that the, the human layers are actually obfuscated for some reason. Mm-hmm. I do want to come back to asking you about AB5 in California in a second, because sure. <laughs> I live in California and it's been on my mind a lot as a freelancer. Yeah, um, yeah. But, um, but you know, in terms of like this, this conversation about like you have this Uber driver who is like in some ways a part of this, right? Because yeah. they are being summoned by an API and all this stuff. And, yeah. you know, would you consider Uber drivers as part of the human capital that is that paradoxical last mile because then the uber driver is then inputting information about the you know rider and they're like they are also doing some of that work that helps yeah. sort of bridge that get that like last mile right 100 percent. so yes i would consider that um so for example um that, that's that's a really good example so it's like okay yeah that, that's a really good example so um okay so at, at this moment you know self-driving cars are not ready for prime time yet right Mm-hmm. Um, so we have humans doing that work, right? Um, and what you could easily see in the future, so but let's just say, let's just say in like a year or two, self-driving cars are can drive, you know, extremely reliably on sunny days during the daytime. You know, so that problem's been solved. But then you need the human drivers for things like nighttime or rain or like I'm enduring right now a big snowstorm. And then, you know, then maybe, you know, computer scientists figure out how to get, you know, self-driving cars to like, you know, drive in the rain better. So then, then you know, humans move to other tasks. And you can definitely see how, uh, you know, current Uber drivers could be considered as part of that ever-moving frontier that we describe in the paradox of automations last month. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that, you know, Libby was talking about, too, is like the part towards the end, later in the book where they talk about or we will talk about like what – is defined as like a good job, right? Is changing. Like the nature of work yeah. is changing because yeah. of all of these sort of connected types of jobs, right? So you have the Uber driver and then you have the, you know, ghost worker behind the Uber driver. And like what yeah. is considered a good job is changing in part because of all of these different things. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh. But it's like, but, but, but it, I, I agree that it is changing, but is it, it's almost like, and, and this kind of goes back to the history chapter. It's like, I think if you look through the course of history and time, like the sort of standard nine to five jobs, actually the minority, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yes, it's changing, but it's like, it's almost changing back to the way it used to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to talk about the end of the book where you talk about solutions. Yeah. Cause I think that was yeah. the thing. That's one thing that I find that folks who listen to flash forward and talk about 
um, the future want to know, right? They're like, how do we fix it, right? Okay, we like, we are all very aware that there are things happening that are not very good. Like, how do we, what do we do? Um, And the thing that, I I think one thing that was actually really interesting to me in the solution section is the Mm -hmm. emphasis, and you talked about this earlier, about the ways in which these workers sort of have, create these sort of informal shared workspaces. But you talk about that, like, it's important and how important it is to create sort of like shared workspaces that that are actually like a part of the company's infrastructure. And I'd love for you to say a little bit more about like why that was so important to you. Like why is that such a big piece of the solution? So if you, okay. So like this kind of work, the, the way I say it is this, um, and, I, and I've said this in talks and presentations, is, is on-demand labor is a very sterile environment. If you take away everything you commonly associate with a traditional nine to five job, so you, you, you take away the coworkers, you take away bosses, you take away advancement, you take away benefits, after dinner drinks, the weekend softball game, the company picnic, you take away all that stuff and all you leave behind is the work and the pay. That's kind of where like just these platforms generally leave, you know, those who create the tasks and those those who do the tasks in this kind of very sterile environment. And as you might expect, with an environment like that, not a ton of work's gonna get done and not a ton of work's gonna get done very well. So, you know, the workers conversely, what they're doing is 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 they clearly value, you know, these connections that they've made and they value working with other people. So they're building this stuff back in. And 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 literally they're doing it at their own expense. Like they literally could be working. Instead, they're they're sort of building these own online communities. So so it it really, really must be valuable to them. And I think that like one of the reasons, so so that's one thing. It's just a kind of a economists call it a revealed preference that the the workers really value this stuff. But number two, the the other way to think about it is like if this is going to be a part of work going forward, we we'd like to make it like a positive part of work, an enjoyable part of work, a part of work that would help people grow. And definitely, these communities are are sort of part and parcel of that, hundred percent. So those are the kind of two ways I was thinking about that. Yeah. Um, so some folks in the book club have mm-hmm. done ghost work before, yeah. and I'm curious if you have any advice for them about like what they could or how they might be able to kind of like, I don't know, either like change things a little or just like given all that you've seen, like do you have any advice for people who do this kind of work? Uh, okay. Uh, advice number one would be, like I said, plug into that community. Like every in the book, we mapped, we sort of mapped the the mechanical Turk community. But like, for example, like I, I was just talking to some folks at Top Coder, uh, slightly different model, but generally in this space. And you know, there's 100% that community there. There's there's definitely been studies of the the Uber driver community. Um, I would definitely encourage them to plug into those. And start, you know, swapping best practices, you know, tips, tricks, software tools, all that. I'm, I am confident that if if workers do that, they'll they'll a have more fun and enjoy it more, and b simply make more money for let in less time. Um, so that that is a hundred percent one thing. Um, a second thing would be like, um, uh, I, I I would say like. Be a little bit more vocal about what is and isn't working um, if they're not already. Um, so, for example, what I mean is like, um, you know, uh, we have this stat in, in, in the book that 30 percent of workers 
who had done this work in, in the year prior to 2016 had been stiffed. And like whenever somebody I hear that, I show that's that to anybody, they, they, their jaw just hits the floor. They're just like, I, I can't believe that. Um, um, and so like, you know, be a little bit more vocal about what parts of the API are not working. That way the platform designers can hopefully step in and, and fix those things. Um, I guess those would be my two sort of, um, and then I, yeah. And then, and then finally, I guess those would be sort of my top two. And then I, I guess the other thing that I, you know, having spoken to some of these workers about is that workers are trying to grapple with like, what's, what's the best way forward for them? Is it to unionize? Is it to self-organize? Is it to just be left alone? Is it, you know, and, and, I, I would encourage workers to join these communities and, and, and be part of that conversation so that they that th this industry goes forward in the best way for them. I'm not going to sit here and tell workers the best thing for you to do is unionize or the best thing for you to do is this or that. The, the best thing for them to do is is they decide what the best thing for them to do is. And I, I would encourage these workers to, to join that conversation. Yeah. I do want to ask you about AB5 in California mm -hmm. and just a short primer for those who are not in California or don't think about labor law regularly. Sure. AB5 yeah. is like a new law in California that is sort of meant to protect and help mostly Uber drivers is kind of who it was targeted to. Um, yeah. the, it has a lot of complications for people like me, actually, like journalists are very against it right now because it makes it really hard for us to freelance. And actually there are some media organizations who are no longer using California freelancers because they're afraid they're going to be found in violation of AB5. Yeah. So um, not great for me, but um, I think meant, meant to do good maybe might have some blowback that did, did, they didn't expect. But I'm curious like how you think about AB5. Actually, well, before I answer your question, I want to ask you a question about what you just said. So, yeah. so you're talking about some unintended consequences, like mm -hmm. AB5 was supposed to help Uber drivers, but it's, it's actually hurting other freelancers. Can you just dig into that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the lawmakers behind AB5 have stated pretty clearly that their goal was to hold tech companies like Uber more accountable for the workers that they are employing, yeah. right? And, yeah. and companies like Uber don't really want to call their drivers workers, right? Because then they'd have to offer them benefits of some kind um, and they don't do that. Um, and so the idea is to kind of like set up, set up tests and situations to figure out who should be considered an employee and who should not. Yeah. Um, and that test, it's really, really hard to make a test like that for every yeah. single industry, right? That works yeah. across every single type of job. And yeah. the test that they have come up with maybe make sense for Uber drivers. I think some Uber drivers love it and some don't. I'm, I've seen mm -hmm. the opinion be really split, but um, has, and there have been carve outs for like truck drivers and other industries, but there's not a carve out right now that makes sense for journalists and it's causing okay. some, some trouble. Got it. Got it. Um, okay. So, um, yeah. So, so the, the one, one part uh, of your question is about, it's about, uh, it might just sound like it's about nomenclature, but it's actually about something much bigger than that. It's like, you know, is the person an employee or not? And, and, and that might just sound like semantics and like not a big deal, but it's actually a huge deal, right? Because like the social safety net in the United States is tied to full-time employment. So like the second you call someone an employee or not, it's basically saying, do they get a social safety net or not? Um, do they get benefits or not? Do they get health insurance or not? 
to get a 401k or not. Um, so it might just sound like a trivial little thing to, to those who are not sort of thinking about this space, but it's a very, very deep thing. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what the law is centered around the fact that that word means a lot legally. Yeah. So I think, I think is this, I think this is like the beginning of the conversation, but I also think that at least what I'm hearing about it, it's the beginning of the conversation. I'm happy the conversation has started, but I'm also like, I'm also like a little afraid it, it, it like doesn't quite go far enough. And here's what I mean. I don't think the answer, like you just alluded to, is like some really smart group of people writing down the perfect test that you can draw a line and say this person's an employee or not. I, 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 that seems kind of hopeless to me um, for all the reasons you, you just said. There's going to be un- unintended consequences. Certain people are going to be left out. Certain people are going to be included that shouldn't have been. I think the so I think this conversation about naming kind of obfuscates that, and I think the better question is about well, if the future of work is going to be less tied to full time employment, well, what does that mean for the social safety net? And I I think this is a first step towards getting to that conversation, but I'm I'm what I'm trying to push people to do is not stop there and keep pushing that conversation to hey wait a minute, why 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 is health insurance tied to to, to to full-time employment. Does that make sense? Is that something I'm comfortable with? Is that something I want my kids to experience and their kids to experience? Do I want something different? That kind of thing. So I, 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 naming's a part of it, but I, I, I want it to go further. Yeah, I think it's also interesting in the context, you know, that comes up in the book a lot, which is that like a lot of ghost workers are not in the United States, right? And are not, yeah. this is not relevant to them, right? And that like, that does that mean that they don't deserve the same kinds of conversations around like benefits and protections? Like, I think it's more, it's complicated. I mean, Law has always been kind of like a blunt instrument in many ways, right? There's only certain yeah. things you can do with the sort of tools you have in the legal yeah. context. So I yeah. kind of like I understand and sympathize with the folks who are trying to do this, but mm-hmm. also sort of am like maybe maybe they I think they might have like rushed to have a bill sooner than they were really ready to necessarily have something that made complete sense. Um but yeah, it is really interesting to me to also see, I think California is also trying to be, you know, like a standard bearer in the way that California likes to try to be. Um yeah. But it doesn't necessarily make a ton of sense for the actual problem that is like we're being presented with, um, which isn't yeah. necessarily really like you said, like a definitional problem. It's more of like a societal structural problem. Yeah, exactly. And like you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the fact that like you know, one bill can't like you know solve all the world's problems and all employment problems to everyone. So maybe they were you know you know, scoping it to solve the entire social safety net problem in California, it seems a little hard to me. Um, so I, I am sympathetic to the fact that they weren't trying to like, you know, boil the ocean. But uh, at the same token, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, you know, that that bill solving the right problem. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe a conversation for another time. It does sort of feel like, you know, lawmakers, particularly in California, where so much of this tech exists, like are looking just for like, the kinds of laws that companies seem to care about versus the kinds of laws that a lot of these companies just flat out ignore. So like <laughs> employment law is something they actually generally are like in is enforced and that they have to follow as opposed to some of the other things that companies tend to just sort of be like, eh, we're not going to listen to you on that. Um, I'm curious, you know, obviously you and Mary both work at Microsoft and yeah. Microsoft is a tech company, right? That is like yeah. using these systems. I'm curious if this 
process of writing this book changed the way that you personally work or changed anything internally at Microsoft? Did, did it like result in any actual changes in, in the way you think about your work or the way that Microsoft does business? Oh, um, so like, it's, 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 it's really funny you mentioned that. I am like, I am like, I'm like on the front lines of that problem. Uh, so like, so, um, yeah, like, like I literally spent the morning working on that problem. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and let me explain. So, um, Microsoft has a, Microsoft in, in, has a program that empowers its employees to hire freelancers and, you know, as part of their like day-to-day job duties. And we work, we, we, we've been working on this program this, this, for like a couple of years and we work very hard on trying to ensure that the workers, the freelancers that we hire get a fair deal and that the Microsoft employees who hire them can be confident in the ethics of this entire situation that, that we have put forth. So, and does this touch on themes and ghost work? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's a lot of, I've done this work sort of like actually after finishing the book. Um, but it's, is it grounded? Is it based on the, our findings and ghost work? 100%. So, and you know, I, I am proud that I work at a company where, you know, you know, responsible use, giving people a fair deal is sort of at the forefront of people's minds. And we didn't just shy away from those problems. We're like digging into them and they're, they're hard and they're thorny. And some of them deal with legal stuff. Some of them deal with HR issues. Some of them deal with engineering issues. And like, we have a cross company team and we're like digging into all of them. Are we going to solve all the problems? Probably not, but we're going to try. Yeah. What's the hardest problem on that front? Do you think on your side? Oh boy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) geez, where do I start? Um, okay. Like, uh, let, let, let's start with, with, with something you had, you had touched on earlier, you know, you had touched on, you know, international workers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So there's a lot of ways to think about that. So you're a Microsoft employee. Let's say, let's say you're, um, you're an engineer, right? And you need someone to do some design work for you, some Photoshop work for you, and you don't have that skill, right? So you, let's say you hire someone, you hire a designer in Romania, Okay, well, right there. Okay, you made a decision to hire this person in Romania as opposed to hire someone locally in Seattle. What are the ethics of that? Microsoft employees want to understand that. Okay, say whatever for whatever reason you've chosen to hire this person in Romania. Okay, well, what's a fair deal for a graphic designer in Romania? I personally have no idea. Um, is that $10 an hour? Is it $100 an hour? I have no idea. Do they get socialized medicine there? I don't know. Do they get a retirement? you know, pension, government sponsored pension. I, again, I have no idea. So you put the, 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 the employee on the front lines here and like they're trying, they're having to make all these decisions just, just to get this thing done. And, 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 and Microsoft employees, they're very conscientious and they're, they're very smart and they understand all this and they're, they're trying to do the right thing. And we're trying to build, we're trying to help them do the right thing and build tools for them so they can be confident they're doing the right thing. Yeah, it does sort of feel like this comes up a lot in like thinking about, you know, people talking about how to, you know, build a better future. It's like every decision you make, there's 9,000 different things to think about. And it can be really overwhelming and really hard to 
feel like you're ever making the right decision if there even is a per- like individual right decision. So I'm I'm really glad you like brought that up. And, and I think that's a very keen insight on your part. And I'm actually really glad you said it as opposed to me. <laughs> be, be, because like, this is hard, yeah. right? And like, yeah, like you said, for any given decision, there's a hundred possible answers. What are the odds of me or anyone getting them all right? It's essentially zero, <laughs> you know, but I'm going to try. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of people are sort of like, you know, quick to criticize, but it's like, okay, you know, our intentions were good. We went down this road. Okay, you know, we got, you know, of the 10 decisions, we got five right, five wrong. Okay, we're going to now reverse course on those five that we got wrong and and figure those out from here. Right, right. I mean, like, intention is not everything, but it is worth recognizing. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Um, So the last question I wanted to ask you is whether or not you're hopeful about the future of ghost work and these sorts of hidden workers or like how you feel day to day on uh, like the prognosis here? Um, am I hopeful? Um, so what, uh, what gives me hope is, is the, yeah, what gives me hope is what, what gives me hope is the, full-time employees, the, the people doing the hiring, the people putting the tasks on the platforms that we've interviewed, like I said, they're all Microsoft employees. They want to do the right thing. That gives me hope. You might think, you know, oh, these are just, you know, uh, you know, these are just, you know, capitalists and, and corporate types and they, they just want to save the company as much money as they can and they're just going to squeeze the freelancer. Like, no, that, that maybe that happens at some companies. It didn't happen here. I'm hoping, I'm hoping as we sort of broaden our study out to other, other companies, we'll find that as well. And so that gives me hope. Um, in terms of like the laws and the legislature, uh, as we've discussed, California is out in front. I think it's, you know, a good start. Uh, I'm curious as to what happens next. Are other states going to follow suit? Follow suit? Is the national government going to follow suit? That kind of thing. Um, it's not that I'm more or less hopeful about the legislation's side of things. It's that I'm actually a little bit more ignorant of it in the sense that like, I personally don't have a great sense of like how to inform like policy decisions. Like I, I don't know any Congress people and things like that. Um, that's kind of more, you know, Mary's, um, expertise. So I kind of lean on her for that. Um, I'm sort of trying to change things from the industry side. Um, I think both approaches are hundred percent the right way to go. And I also think changing things from the, the worker side, that's another place where I'm very hopeful. The workers are, in my opinion, extremely clever, extremely resourceful. And, you know, if, if anyone's going to get changed things, it's, it, to get things changed, it's them. So I'm sort of hopeful on, on a few fronts. Um, I'm, like I said, I'm a little bit ignorant on the legislative side, but, um, that's kind of the way I think about it. Yeah. Um, well, those are all the questions that I wanted to ask you. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I did not ask you about? Um, I guess um, going forward, like what I'd love, you know, going forward, what I would love is to see people recognize that there is human labor tied up in these processes that look automated. And I'd rather let's surface that. And let's 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 own that, and let's let's celebrate those people. Let's shine a light on them, 
Let's thank them for their contributions. And, and let's go forward from a society with that in mind, as opposed to sort of obfuscating them, which, in my opinion, doesn't really benefit anyone. So that's kind of what I, the change I'd like to see going forward. Yeah, I mean, it maybe benefits the company who doesn't want to, you know, fairly compensate workers. Yeah, me. Um, <laughs> I mean, you might think so at, at first glance, but then, but then, like, okay, you don't fairly compensate workers. Then they get mad. Then, then you know, they start boycotting you, and then you get either no workers or or, or not great workers. And I actually think in the long run, it's a lose. Hmm. So it could be a short term win, but I don't think it's a long term win. Hmm. Hmm. Just got to sell your company before it turns into a lose. <laughs> um, well, thank you so, so, so much for your time, Sid. This is great. Um, I know that the listeners and the readers are going to be stoked to, to hear this. Um, what's next for you? What's the, do you have another book in mind or are you back to? Um, back yeah, to good question. Uh, what's next? Um, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to change things from the industry side. Uh, it's something that I've, feel passionate about. I also feel that like, like there's not a ton of people that can do that are in a position to do that. So I kind of, I, I, I don't just feel like I want to do it. I also feel like I should do it and I'm sort of obligated to do it. And I'm, I'm happy to step up to that obligation. So that's, that's one thing for me that I'm, I'm definitely keeping, um, um, sort of top of mind. Um, another thing for me that I'm thinking about is, um, uh, I'm not sure people really understand where their data goes. Mm. Um, in, in the same way that like the workers were hidden, I think the sort of hidden networks that like ship people's data around, I'm not sure they, people fully understand that. So I was thinking about trying to shine a light on that. Um, and those are sort of the two directions I'm thinking about at the moment. Um, but I, I sort of after the book, I have spent some time sort of thinking about what's next and that's what I've come up with, but it is subject to change. Yeah. <laughs> I won't hold you to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This is fun. Thank thank you. And I and again I just want to thank you for your time and your listeners for their time. And 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 like I said, there's many books there they could read and I'm 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 grateful they chose to read ours. Okay. Uh, interesting. Yes, I think so. Yeah. Um, and you can join the book club again by becoming a $7 patron if you haven't already. Um, and if you do join, the channels discussing the books are active even after the month ends. So if you read Ghostwork and you want to talk about it with some people, um, we're here. We're just hanging out waiting for you. Okay, so a few final things just to say uh, at the end of this little episode. Um, first, thank you so much to everybody who took the polls and offered feedback on those posts that I did about sort of like how this Patreon works, the rewards, the future of the you know donation system, all that stuff. Um, given your input, I am actually going to stick with a per episode setup here. Um, I think that the pros outweigh the cons for sticking with the kind of way we have it now instead of going to a monthly version. Um, those of you who were sort of advocating for going to monthly because then you kind of get a more regular schedule for knowing exactly how much you're going to donate, um, that problem should basically be solved this year because this year I'm actually going back to an every other week schedule for the show, which means that you will essentially always be charged the same amount every month, um, which will be your pledge multiplied by two because there are generally two episodes every month because every other week. The only month for which that is not true is September of this year is the one month that will end up having three episodes, um, again, every other week. I will warn you again before that happens in case you want to set up like a monthly maximum or something like that. Um, and obviously you can set that up now if you want. I'll link to how to do that in the notes for this bonus podcast. Um, okay, the show, flash forward, officially comes back April 14th. That is going to be the first episode. Um, and I have the first 
like 10-ish episodes kind of planned out, um, and they are going to be really cool and really fun, and I am very excited. Um, thank you to everybody who has suggested episodes, particularly people in the Facebook group who suggested episodes. I have definitely pulled a bunch of those, and so I will obviously give you a shout out if your idea is picked and I do it on the show. Um, I am also working on a very quick kind of surprise episode thing that's going to go out in the main feed, not just this bonus feed, the main feed before April 14th, but I will not tell you what it is because then it wouldn't be a surprise anymore. Um, Otherwise, I am currently sort of like fully in book writing mode. Um, I'm working on the flash forward book. My deadline for the book is April 1st, which is very soon, it feels like. Um, but it is coming together really well. I'm super excited about it. Um, every time I work on it, I get really excited. Um, as you may know from past bonus episodes, the book is sort of um, a collaboration between me and a bunch of comic artists. So each chapter is going to begin with a, you know, about 16 page comic, kind of the way the show opens with a little scene from the future. But this will be comics. And then I'll write a chapter afterwards kind of about the science and tech and, you know, philosophy and ethics and all that stuff of that future. Um, so I've been working with these artists and it's been so fun. Um, I'm learning a ton about comics and how comics work and how they come together. Um, and it's just been really amazing. Uh, the artists are awesome. They're all really different. They all have really different perspectives and styles. It's just going to, it's going to be so cool. I, I like really can't wait for, for you to read it. Um, and I will keep you updated as that process comes along. And if there's anything I can share with you in terms of the process um, without violating my contract with my book publisher, I will absolutely do that. Um, but just know that it's, it's been really fun um, and I've been writing the chapters and it's just been really cool. Um, okay, the last thing that I will say for now is just to say that I was recently on a very cool podcast called Ologies, which you probably already listened to. If you don't already listen to Ologies, I would definitely say check it out. The show is one of my favorite podcasts Ever, genuinely. I love that show. Um, the host, Ali Ward, is so funny and smart and awesome and was so kind to have me on the show. Um, I will link to that episode in the show notes. Okay, that's it. Um, I will end, uh, as usual, with a little secret. And it is an update to an earlier secret, which I told you all about my mission to create the best Bloody Mary possible. Um, I have made some progress. I made my favorite Bloody Mary ever. The problem was that it looked disgusting. <laughs> looked like slime. So got to work on the visuals, but we're getting somewhere. Okay. That's all for now. Um, have a great rest of your day, whatever that might look like. Bye.